Well, hello, friends. Welcome to the Capital City Christian Church Podcast. My name is Chris, and I'm going to be your host today. If this is your first time listening, I would love to chat with you. So send me an email at hello at capitalcitychristian.org. We're in week three of a series called Rescued to Rescue. We think our lives have a lot in common with a hero's story. A hero comes to make a sacrificial rescue, but we're not the hero. Jesus is. We were the ones needing rescue. And now that we've been rescued, we have a role to play. We're here to serve as a kind of sidekick to the hero. We've been rescued to be rescuers. Today, we're talking about sharing our rescue stories with those we might not like or who might be different from us. So let's get right to it with our senior minister, Dr. Stephen Doc Pattison. How many of you guys remember that movie, A Time to Kill? Believe it or not, over 20 years old now. Great movie though, 10-year-old black girl is abducted, raped, beaten by two white guys in Canton, Mississippi back in the days when two white guys could do stuff like that and maybe get away with it. Her father, Carl Lee Haley, shoots the rapist dead. Now he's on trial for murder. And that was one of the most famous scenes because because almost every dad watching the movie could understand exactly what he was feeling. We'd probably feel the same, right? So, have you ever wished that anyone would burn in hell? Be honest. Have you ever told somebody you can go to hell and it wasn't just a phrase, you actually meant it? you ever hated anybody so fiercely that you just can't wait for God to make them pay forever? Now, a couple of weeks ago, I said something pretty weird. I said, I wish I could arrange for all of you guys to to spend just one day in hell, or maybe at hell's entrance, just one day, so you could watch the faces of those who are entering, faces of those people that you don't like or don't know, and those you do, those you don't like, and those you do like, because you're Friends, some of them, and neighbors and colleagues are going to be going there too. And I, and I set that up because sometimes we forget what's at stake, how important this stuff is. Last week I amped it up. I said again, I wish I could arrange for all of you guys to spend a day in hell, but this time just to watch the face of maybe a mom or a dad, sister or a brother, a son or a daughter, a grand son, a granddaughter, who might be headed there. And then we talked about the single most important job any Jesus follower has. Of all of the things that we do in this world, the most important job I've got as a Christian man is to do whatever I can to connect my spouse, my kids, my grandkids, the rest of my family to Jesus, right? Remember that stuff? If you need to catch up, you can go to capcity.info and you can actually read or listen to the things that have already gone before. Now I'm going to take that scenario, same basic scenario, and alter it just a little bit this morning because my suspicion is that if you were there spending your day watching faces, if I could spend that day watching your face as you watch those faces, I wonder if I could see occasionally the glimpse of a smile, a look of satisfaction, approval, (laughs) Maybe it's one of those jihadi terrorists. And you're thinking to yourself, not quite the 72 virgins you expected, is it, you twit? Or maybe you recognize a rapist and you've heard stories about what that rapist did. 
and maybe even it flitted through your mind, I hope he rots in hell. Would it feel good to see it happen? Or maybe, maybe it's the face of an ex. Someone who hurt you so deeply, someone who hurt your kids so deeply that you're thinking, thought so. Or maybe it's the face of a bully who made life hellish for you. Maybe the life of a boss or the face of a boss who fired you or the face of a neighbor who made your life so miserable. Would you perhaps have these glimpses of satisfaction, gratification, that finally there's justice? So is it possible, is it possible that some of us might actually enjoy at least a little piece of that day in hell, getting to see those faces, getting to see justice finally, getting what's coming to them? What a weird way to start a sermon, isn't it? We're actually in the last part of a little series of series that we're calling Life a Rescue Story, and September was about the rescue. We were rescued by Jesus. We need to understand that. October was about living a rescued life. If you've been rescued by Jesus, there's certain expectations of living as a Jesus follower. We talked about those expectations. This month, it's about becoming rescuers because if you keep hanging out with a hero, you're probably going to end up being a rescuer too. And we focused on Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is where Jesus, just before he goes to heaven, this is what he tells his apostles. He says, you guys are going to receive power First of all, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you're going to need that power because you guys, you guys are going to be my witnesses. All of you guys, he says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And last week we focused on Jerusalem and Judea, which to them meant start where you are. Start with people who are like you. Start with people that you like, right? Start with family. That's where we were last week. This week's going to be tougher. He says, I want you to be witnesses in Samaria too. And that may not mean a lot to you guys, but it meant a whole lot to them. Because basically what they're hearing him say is this, I want you to take me to those you don't like. I want you to take me to those who don't like you. I want you to witness to the people in Samaria too. People you know, but people you despise. People who despise you. People you hate, and they hate you back. Maybe they've messed up people that you love. And God wants us to take Jesus to them too? Really? So I want to start out this morning by describing how they did it. Because they did it literally. In fact, a lot of people say that Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is kind of an outline for the book of Acts. It says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. And if you read Acts chapter 1 through 7, that's their witness in Jerusalem and Judea. You get to chapter 8, that's their witness literally in Samaria. And then the rest of the books, their witness to the ends of the earth. What was their earth? So I want to look at how they did it in their Samaria. Acts chapter 8, it opens like this. Luke, who's the guy who wrote Acts, same guy who wrote the gospel of Luke, wrote the book of Acts. Luke says, a great wave of persecution began that day. That's right after they killed Stephen, the first martyr. Persecution began that day. It swept over the whole church in Jerusalem. All the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Samaria because it was right next door, right to their north. And so the guys who killed Jesus started coming after us, the Jesus followers. 
See, because we were out there telling people that he didn't stay dead. God had raised him from the dead, so he really was the Messiah. He really was the Son of God. They killed the wrong guy, right? So they started coming after us, down to verse 4. So the believers who were scattered by the persecution, they preached the good news. Good news. I want you to hang on to that word. They preached good news, literally gospel. They preached gospel, good news about Jesus wherever they went, which means basically they can chase us, but they can't shut us up. So this guy named Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria, the actual city of Samaria in Samaria. And he told the people there about the Messiah. And they're thinking, why would he do that? Why would he do that? I mean, I can understand why Philip might hide in Samaria, right? He's on the run. Philip's pursuers might be reluctant to chase him into Samaria because Jews hated Samaritans, Samaritans hated Jews. It's not going to be a safe place for them either. Why preach Jesus to them? Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, isn't he? See the Samaritan Messiah too? And why would any of the Samaritans even listen to Philip? He's a Jew. They hated Jews. Now, to get a sense of what this is about, think of the kind of people that you hate the most. I bet you got somebody. The kind of people that you hate the most. And then put that hatred on steroids. I mean, Jews and Samaritans had hated each other for three times as long as the United States has been a country. 600 years before, King of Babylon had defeated the Jews. He destroyed their temple. He had taken the best of their best into exile. He left behind the people who didn't matter. And for generations, those people who were left behind, the people who didn't matter, married each other and they married other people who were not even Jews who'd moved in and they became the half-breeds, the Samaritans. When the Jews got back from their exile, the upstanding Jews, they went to rebuild their temple. The Samaritans said, can we help? The Jews said, we don't want your help, you half-breeds, dogs. So the Samaritans built their own temple and their mutual disgust morphed into mutual hate. In 128 B.C., a Jewish king went north with a squad and he destroyed the temple of the Samaritans, burned it to the ground. About a hundred years later, the Samaritans snuck into Jerusalem, threw the bones of dead people into their temple during the feast of Passover to defile the place. These are not college pranks. This is like Christians burning mosques and mosques burning churches with the people still inside worshiping. How would that light you up? So by the time of Philip, when he goes north into Samaria, every single day in a Jewish synagogue, the Jews would curse the Samaritans. They'd literally curse them. They would pray to God that no Samaritan, no Samaritan would ever find any place in heaven. May they all go to hell. Jews hated the Samaritans. Samaritans hated the Jews. In fact, that may be why Jesus had actually to spell it out the way that he did. He could have said, I want you to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, your home, and I want you to take Jesus to the ends of the earth. But he wedges in between. He says, I want you to be a witness to the Samaritans too. Yes, the Samaritans too. Your neighbors, you know, the ones you hate, the ones who hate you, they need Jesus too, he says. Because here's the deal. Here's what we do, right? We tend to drag our prejudices and we tend to drag our hatreds into our life with God. 
A lot of old soldiers carried their hatred of the Japs into their life with God. A lot of whites used to carry their hatred of blacks into their life with God. Some still do, I guess. Some people today carry their prejudices against Hispanics into their life with God. Have you carried any prejudices into your life with God? Maybe it's not one of these. Maybe it's some kind of sexism or some kind of classism or some kind of ageism. Maybe you harbor prejudices against people who are fat or uneducated or unenlightened. Here it is, guys. Listen. Our prejudices will inevitably clash with our life with God. Our prejudices will always clash with our life with God. They don't belong in our life with God. They don't belong in this room. God's been trying to rip our prejudices away from us for millennia. So verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria, of all people, had accepted God's message, they actually sent their two big guns, Peter and John. You've got to remember, the apostles were all Jews, Right? And all of the Jews had grown up hating the Samaritans, and we drag our prejudices and our hatreds into our life with God. So I think, likely, undoubtedly, a whole lot of the earliest Jesus followers kind of hoped, still, that every Samaritan would burn in hell. So they're like, Samaritans? Are you serious? He's preaching to Samaritans? And you're telling me these Samaritans actually listen and they want to accept Jesus? So they send their two biggest guns they've got, Peter and John, to go check it out. Do we have to accept them too? Peter and John had been with Jesus long enough, been scolded by him enough, that they actually let him lead, which is smart. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. Because if God gives his spirit to the Samaritans, that means God's accepting them. Peter and John have been with Jesus. They're smart enough to know that it is stupid to reject someone that God accepts. Stupid. In fact, if you reject someone that God accepts, you're kind of rejecting God, right? If we hold on to a prejudice or a hatred against someone God accepts, it means that in reality we're squaring up against God, which is dumb. And then there's this weird, weird little detail in verse 16. Luke says, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit actually had not come upon any of them because they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, whatever that means. In other words, Philip had already baptized these guys, but for some reason, they weren't indwelt with the Holy Spirit yet, which is weird because when you get baptized, the norm is ordinarily when we baptize somebody, the whole water is washing the outside, but we believe by God's promise that the Spirit is watching their inside, and He's going in and taking up a residence in a new believer. That's the norm. We're baptized with water, we're baptized with the Spirit. So why was it different here with these Samaritans? I've done a whole lot of reading and a whole lot of study on these verses. I've read a lot of great Christian teachers on these verses, and almost all of them say the same thing, and I think they're dead right. Here it is. It's kind of like God waited to give his spirit to the Samaritans in a powerful, visible way so the apostles could see it. They needed to see it. They needed to see God accepting these people. They didn't want anybody to miss it because God didn't want any pushback. God was blessing these Samaritans, and if God blesses those Samaritans, we don't push them away. We don't exclude those God includes. 
See, prejudice against the Samaritans could have infected the church. And God was telling him that the walls were going to have to come down. So Peter and John, apostles, laid their hands on these Samaritans. And somehow everybody watching knew that these guys got the Holy Spirit. And when they got the Holy Spirit, they knew they're in. And if they're in, don't you dare push them out. If our Savior and our Lord wants them in, then it's up to us to figure out a way to crawl out over our prejudices and our hatreds, to invite them in, to invite them in, not even just to tolerate them being in, but to invite them in. Because Jesus said, you will be my witnesses, not just in Jerusalem and Judea, but you're going to be my witnesses even to the Samaritans. <laughs> well, some people think they can pull that off by doing it like this, right? They hold up a sign, turn or burn. Turn to Jesus or burn in hell. I love this one when I saw this one. It's from a Baptist church. Turn or burn, happy new year. All right? Isn't that a great sign? Or for the more sophisticated, repent or perish. Bigger words. Or do you like this guy's t-shirt? The guy holding up a sign like that. God hates you just the way that you are. These guys think they're doing what Jesus tells them to do when he says, I want you to be a witness to the Samaritans. That is not being a witness to Jesus. Being a witness is telling them who he is, what he did for you, and he can do the same for them. Right? That's not gospel. Do you know what gospel means literally? I already told you earlier. Literally in Greek, it means good news. You, good, angelio, news, good news, gospel. What part of this nonsense is good news? What part of this is let me tell you what Jesus did for me and did you know that Jesus can do that for you too? The gospel is truth and grace. It is truth with grace. It's the truth of God's grace. There's no turn and burn in the gospel. I saw this clip a long time ago back when Penn and Teller were pretty big. How many of you guys remember Penn and Teller? Look around. You're looking at old people, right? They got their hands up. They were pretty good. Penn Gillette was an atheist back when it wasn't cool to be an atheist. Well, he tells the story of one time when a very, very polite, very quiet, very gentle Jesus follower presented him with a Bible. And how he shared Jesus with him, he said, was powerful, even though he was still not a believer. He said it was so impressive. Listen to what he says. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Telling you guys, if someone had just pulled out a Turner Burn poster and stuck it on his desk, it wouldn't have done a thing. Someone presented truth with grace. 
Here it is. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses even in Samaria. And I've been trying to tell you how being a witness in Samaria has taken Jesus to people you don't like, to people who don't like you. I've been trying to tell you that what we tend to do is to drag our prejudices and our hatreds into our life with God. Which means being a witness to an enemy is about forgiveness and grace. It's an act of forgiveness and grace. Either it's a sign, if you're witnessing to an enemy, either it's a sign that God is healing you and you need some healing. Or it's a sign to your enemies that you're willing to forgive them. Now, if there's some prejudice corrupting your soul, sharing Jesus with someone that you despise is going to put you in a spot where God can heal your twisted heart. If, on the other hand, you're sharing Jesus with someone who you despise for good reason, then sharing Jesus is an act of forgiveness. It's an act of grace, and it's one of the toughest, most powerful things Jesus ever commands any Jesus follower to do. Sometimes it is just stupid prejudice. Sometimes our enemies have done nothing wrong. They were just born of the wrong color. They live in the wrong place. They like things you don't like or they believe things you don't believe. And Jesus says, I want you to be my witness to them too. In other words, he's saying, grow up. Knock it off. Get over it. There's no place for prejudice in the family of God. It's vile. It's a cancer. It drives God's precious kids away from God and it steals your peace and your joy. Sharing Jesus with those you despise unjustly puts you in a spot where God can heal your heart, which is so cool. But sometimes our enemies are our enemies for good reason. They hate us. They hurt us. They hurt someone we love. That's worse. They stand for everything we stand against. They've done wrong. They don't deserve grace. They don't deserve grace. Think about that. I want to say that again. They don't deserve grace. Not stupid. Grace is by definition undeserved. If you got grace, you didn't deserve it. There's a line that we use here on occasion. I believe it firmly. Stole it from Yancey. He says, there's nothing you have ever done to make God love you less. Do you believe that? And there's nothing you could ever do to make God love you more. God loves you as you are. And God loves you way too much to let you stay as you are, right? Powerful stuff. Well, here's the other side of that. Listen. There is nothing that any of your enemies has ever done to make God love them less. Even something they've done to you. There is nothing that any of your enemies could do to make God love them more. He already loves them absolutely and unconditionally. Jesus died for them too. Jesus wants them in his family too. He wants to save them. He loves them as they are and he loves them way too much to let them stay the way they are. So he wants to pull on them through you. That's hard. Because sometimes my enemies are enemies for good reason. They've done me wrong. They've done my family wrong. They've done the family of God wrong. They don't deserve forgiveness. They don't deserve Grace, they deserve justice. They should pay. God should make them pay. 
Because, guys, most of us have this kind of a love affair and this hatred of grace at the same time. We love to get it. We hate it when God gives it to the wrong people, right? We love to get it. We hate to give it when God tells us to. When I can't exact justice on an enemy, I want God to exact justice on my enemy for me. But he demands that those of us who have been graced become conduits of that grace. He says, you will be my witnesses. You guys will be my witnesses even in Samaria. So how? This is hard. How do we get it done? How do we even get started? And I'm going to give you four pieces, and I think all of these pieces are absolutely critical. Here's piece one. You start trying to look at your enemies through God's eyes, which is hard. We have to remind ourselves sometimes that the people that we despise are precious creatures of God. Every human being, every human being was created to be God's kid. Every human being was created to do life with God, for God, God's way. Every human being bears the image of God, however corrupted it might be. Messed up, but his image is in there somewhere. You see, sometimes we start looking as an enemy as a nothing but or a no more than. He's nothing but an animal. She's no more than a liar and a cheat. And we shrink our enemy to the size of their sin. We shrink them to the size of what they've done to us. And we no longer see them as they really are. When we see them with God's eyes, we start seeing a human being created in the image of God, meant to be God's child, but who's really twisted up, messed up, some way more than others. Every person, every one of us is a confusing mixture of good and evil, meanness and decency, lies and truths. We're broken, desperate for God's grace. They are too. That's how our enemies look to God, and that's how we try to see them, as hard as it is. And then we give up our right to play God our right to play God. In other words, we give up our right to get even, to exact justice. We let God be God because God's good at it and we're not. Have you ever uttered this blasphemy? Has this ever crossed your lips? God may forgive him, but I never will. <laughs> Arrogance, stupidity. Instead of leaving justice and fairness to God because he's good at it, Instead of letting him sort it out, we try to take it on our own shoulders. But it's risky to surrender your right to get even, right? Because God may not deal with our enemies the way we think he should. He might give grace to the one who hurt me, and I don't want him to taste grace. I want him to have justice. Nothing more sacred than my right to hurt the one who hurt me or mine. Nothing fair, nothing sweeter, nothing more deserved. And if I can't pay them back, then I'm hoping God will. And listen, when we witness to Jesus, when we share Jesus, we give up our right to play God. We give up our right to play God. I choose to allow God to grace whomever he chooses as if he needs my permission. So we start looking at them through God's eyes. We give up our right to play God. Number three, we ask God's help in healing our own hearts, which are twisted up. It's incredibly difficult to move from hatred to toleration 
to love. You see, what we feel beforehand when there are enemies is always some variation of hate. We disguise it so we don't have to recognize it or admit it in ourselves. But where you find our prejudices and our hatreds, you see those tender places of your heart that have not yet been transformed by our God. He's got work to do on us. But we start to turn. We start praying that, okay, God, maybe, maybe you can do good for them. Maybe it will be good if they find Jesus. Maybe I really do want to want that they discover the mercy of God and the grace of God. And when you can start praying something like that, you'll feel the first inklings of healing start working inside your soul. And then, share Jesus. Share Jesus. Be a witness, even to the Samaritans. We tell them who he is, we tell them what he's done for us, and we tell them what he could do for them. And when that enemy, if that enemy starts loving on Jesus, sometimes it's annoying. We're not sure we like it. We pray to God to heal that dark spot in our soul. God bless them. God heal them. God love on them. And teach me to love on them too. It's a hard prayer, but it's a healing prayer. And listen, guys, this is, this, this is cool. When you start sharing Jesus with an enemy, God sets a prisoner free. And then you discover that that prisoner was you. So, look at your enemies through God's eyes. Surrender your supposed right to play God. Ask him to heal your ungrace and share Jesus. Be a witness, even to the Samaritans. Guys, there is nothing more powerful than God transforming enemies into friends. Has he ever done that for you? If you look around this room, are there people who used to be your enemies that are now your friends? Uh, as you look around this room, are there people who are your enemies that ought to be your friends in Christ? We're going to share the Lord's table in just a moment. This is a weird, weird thing that we do here every week. You don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to be here. None of us do. Who deserves grace? He died for us. He took our sins to the cross. Who deserves to come to this table? We have people in this room who sometimes say, I'm not worthy of coming to the table. Well, you're right. Of course you're not. That's just being self-aware. But if you know that and you want his grace, he invites you. Come, please. And look at these weird, weird people around you. Some of the people in this room would be enemies in any other place. And here we are about to share Jesus together. We're going to stand at this table together. And as we stand at this table, we are being witnesses that he is our Lord and our allegiance to him is more important than anything that we might be feuding with about each other. Is there anyone that you wouldn't eat this meal with? Is there an enemy that you have that you hate so much that if you were standing here in line and they got up and stood in line next to you, you'd step out of line and you wouldn't share this table because you don't want to share it with him? We got hammered on the social media one time because we were letting notorious people come to this table and eat with us. <laughs> They're the only kind who come to this table at this church. I guess they expected us to have bouncers or something. We're not going to. 
If you recognize that you need grace and you want grace through Jesus Christ, you're welcome to come to this table, guys. We're not quite done. I've got just a couple more things. Just like the last couple of weeks, we've got a little coaching on how to share Jesus with people outside these walls. But James and I are going to do that at the very end of the service. For right now, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite you to come and share the table together as a witness to Christ. Would you pray with me, please? Father, so grateful. So grateful for your grace. That's all any of us has. And I pray that those of us who have been graced will live it out. And your kingdom will grow and you will be glorified. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Almost done, guys. We just have a couple of things left that we need to do. You know, one of the things I talked about a couple of weeks ago is that we've just got a lot of work to do as a church family. We want to be better at being a witness. That was our command from our Lord, be a witness. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. We want to do everything, every one of those things well. We've been doing a little coaching at the end of each one of our services the last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, I talked about being a witness to our guests when they come into this room. How are we a witness to people who are looking for Jesus right here? How do we worship for each other? How do we greet our guests in a way that they're welcome in this place? Last week, we talked about being a witness for Jesus in our homes. Today, I want to turn a little bit. How to be a witness for Jesus outside these walls, even in the workplace, Okay. He tells us to be a witness. How are you going to share Jesus in the workplace? Something all of us need to think about. Now, for me, it's pretty easy. This is my workplace, right? So I talk about Jesus every day in my workplace. But for a lot of you guys, you don't work in a church, right? My wife was one of the best I've ever watched um, sharing Jesus in the workplace. If she learned a person who was new in town, she worked for Sears and Lowe's for 25 years. She always, where's your church? You need a church family. How about Capital City Christian Church? She had numerous conversations every week with people about God, about Jesus, with their co-workers, carrying Jesus in the workplace. Her employers weren't always excited about it, but I think God was really tickled the way she talked to people about Jesus on the floor. But another person who's really good at it is James. Um, James, we just hired him as our growth minister, but he works in the real world too, besides here in the church. And, you know, he talked a couple of weeks ago how even just when he goes to Kroger, he prays to God, is there someone here I can touch in Kroger today? You know, just show me somebody that I can grace with God's grace here today, but he's pretty good at sharing Jesus in the workplace too, and I asked him just to take two or three minutes to talk about how he does this kind of thing. James? For the, for the majority of my uh, work life, I'm going to be totally honest with you, uh, I didn't take Christ into the workplace like I ought to because I was more concerned about me. I was more concerned about me getting a promotion. I was more concerned about me having a good reputation. I was more concerned about me getting those job titles. And so for a lot of the time that I worked, I, I wasn't really focusing on how to take Christ into the workplace. And several years ago, I began to think, what would happen instead of promoting me, I promoted Jesus. And I'll tell you what I began to start doing is I began to still work hard, but I worked hard because what I wanted someone to see was that a Christian will honor God by working hard. The second thing that I did was, instead of trying to promote me, I began to promote others. I began to lift up my coworkers to them and to, to other people in our work group, to their boss. I try to make it so that I say something positive that will lift that person up. And the third thing I like to do is I like to give away 
work product. See, we, I'm kind of in a, a culture where you hang on to what you have. You don't share it. Because if you've got it, it makes you look good. But what I try to do is try to give it away so that if it helps someone, makes their job easier, I feel like that that's a positive thing that I can do. And in fact, sometimes people go, why do you keep sending us this stuff? What's happened when I changed from promoting James to promoting Jesus? What has happened is it has opened doors for me to literally pray with people at work. I've been able to pray for managers who've asked me to pray for them because hopefully what they saw was someone who really cared about them and not just themselves. So three simple things we can do. We can work hard. We can lift up other people. And we can share what we do to make their jobs easier. And it will open up a lot of doors. So let's pray. Father, give us the opportunity this week. Maybe we haven't done a very good job in the past, but tomorrow is a new day. Tomorrow gives us new opportunities to make a difference where we are in our workplace. Father, help us to be an example of what a Christ follower will do to show people we care for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week and hope to see you next week.